Hey Quad Cities, this is Pat Militich, and we're bringing my show, Everything Combat, live to the radio, Monday at 7 p.m. on ESPN 93.5. Join Jeff and me as we talk about all of life's battles with a special guest. Once again, that is Everything Combat, live Monday, 7 p.m. on ESPN 93.5, because life is a fight. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Pardon a little bit of a little bit of tardiness, but you know, it's quite all right. Better late than never, Jeffrey Wilson. Riding shotgun with my partner in crime, UFC Hall of Famer, Gobbler of Worlds, Slayer of Dragons, Pat Militant. What's up, champion? If you think about the people that have come and gone in and out of the UFC over all the years. Exactly. Buffer has pretty much always been there. That's what I wonder, Besides the very, very first few shows. I wonder if he has like remember. a favorite favorite match, favorite knockout. I'll be anxious to hear some of some of his Pat Militant stories, but I want <laughs> I wonder if he has. I wonder if he has some favorites. Well, you know, you, it was cool to hear him say the Croatian sensation and all that stuff and screaming, getting and ejected. Still. It's it's yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. But so yeah, when are we getting him on the line? I don't know. When are we, what are we going to do there, producer Jay? When are we going to holler at our boy? Um, uh, let's give him a few more minutes. Okay. Let's uh talk about last week, guys. Oh man, jeez, my God. And what did you see? Did you see uh, Joe Rogan posted today that he is having Mike Tyson on his show on Thursday? And I happened to comment. He's like, in his comment, he was like, I'm having the youngest heavyweight of all time. And I, of course, commented, that's awesome because we just had the oldest heavyweight of all time, George Foreman. That was such an awesome conversation, champ. I mean, literally, it's like, you know, we're all friends here and we have very casual conversations. And that that was just a conversation with a good friend, it sounded like. He was so cool and so just like open and uh, very genuine human being talking about his past openly and. The tough life that he had, and that's what this show is about, as we will remind the listeners. It's about people who have succeeded in life through hardship, through... Overcoming adversity. Absolutely, and that's something that... Look, everybody deals with it, right? I mean, we all do. I mean, like, if you go back to listen to some of our episodes with C.T. Fletcher, man, like, you know, he is very much so, along with, you know, me... You know, just manning up and doing some damn push-ups. He's very much so responsible for me sitting right here next to the champ because I was I was very much so in my own head and I had to kind of overcome my own stuff. And I know you have done the same thing. You know, every like everybody, we all have our stuff. We gotta we gotta overcome because it's like you know it's it's a crossroads in life, man. Either you just wave the white flag and quit. And I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, quitting can become just as much of a habit as winning. And um, like I said, you could you could easily throw in the towel, man, when things get rough. But that is truly the test of the metal of a human being. You know, do do you quit in the face of adversity or do you persevere? How many times have we seen you know the successful person and we only know them for that? Right? Absolutely, absolutely. The thousands of times that they've failed that I've, we've never seen. Yeah. We don't understand what turned them into the person that they have become. So for all the listeners out there who are going through hardship, tough times, getting turned down for. Dream jobs, whatever, man. I'm telling you, stay, stay after it. Stay after your dreams. Because do not quit. If you do not waver and do not quit, it eventually will happen. And that was the, that was the thing. It was, you know, it comes down to people convincing themselves that they could do it, and that it's you just have to envision it first. Convince yourself that you can do it. Trick your mind if you have to. Right, without a right? doubt, man. That was that was one of CT's videos that really, really resonated with me. It was called Unchain Your Mind. And it was just kind of reiterated what you just said, but he said it in total C.T. Fletcher fashion with a little bit more expletives involved. But it's essentially, you know what I mean? We The narrative sometimes we tell ourselves is, is no, we can't do it. Or if we run into a failure or two, it's like, oh, that's going to define my journey. When in fact, man, like, kind of like you said, and I saw it was a meme. It was a picture of a glacier. And it's like we always just see the top of the glacier when below is like all of this, you know, stuff we don't see, the hard work that goes involved into to getting where we need to be. So. 
Um, you know, I, I hope I'm looking forward to all these kind of stories, man, because we need, you know, the world's kind of uh, can be an ugly place. And even though there is a lot of beauty involved, it's good to kind of get these these inspirational stories from Buffer, CT, Eric Bischoff, um, you know. George Foreman. Yeah, we've got Micah Fink, as I mentioned last week, where he's yeah. going to be coming on next week, former SEAL Team 6 member who started Heroes and Horses. And eventually we're going to get David Rutherford. David Rutherford's an incredible individual, also former former Navy SEAL, who, I tell you what, if you get a chance, go to YouTube, look up David Rutherford, Embrace Fear, and look at his videos on that. Some of the coolest videos I've ever seen, whoever put those together for him is, is a genius. And David Rutherford is a really, really amazing motivational speaker he'll go to corporations and he'll make corporate officers get in giant horse troughs full of ice water and freeze while he's giving his speech and then he'll get them out and have them doing push-ups and air squats and planks and all kinds of stuff and then put them back in the freezing water the whole time he's doing his speech so these people that are employees at this corporate you know this, this corporation are watching a lot of their higher ups being tortured and toughen it out while he's giving his speech, and I think it's I think it's a pretty cool visual for for people to see that. So David Rutherford is is going to be on this show. I'm looking forward to it. So let's give our boy a call, shall we? Do we give him a ring? Oh. The ring for Bruce Buffer. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. <laughs> Live radio for you, ladies and gentlemen. Three, one, zero. Do you want to shoot him a text real quick, Pat? Bruce is in the middle of yeah. doing some filming. Said he would. He's running a little bit late. Look, yeah. this is nothing compared to last week. Oh, dude. this is nothing for the, for the listeners. This is nothing compared to last dude, week. Last we, week we couldn't even reach George Foreman. He wasn't even responding to us, and we he had to get little... Jens Pulver on for the first fifteen minutes or so. And then we were able to get George on. So this is... Dude, last week, even though it did not go exactly how we wanted, the end result was absolutely sweet. We're talking to Jens Pulver, former UFC champion, with a former UFC champion. And those stories were great. I mean, we kind of cut him off at a very poignant point where he was talking about his father and his father's death. But that's going to be part two later on down the line. But to get two champions on, speaking with a champion here, I mean, I, I got a lot of feedback on how, how really sweet that all came, came together. Even though George was not readily, readily available at first, he, uh, he came through, and obviously, you know, we had an awesome conversation. But now, Jens, we definitely want to thank him big time. What's up? Oh, my phone's dead. <laughs> Jay's fought, our, our producer, producer Jay, producer, he's, he's helping us out, so. We'll give him another call here in a minute. We'll give um, him. We'll give I'll him a ring trying. a dingy. But yeah, dude, I was. I mean, talking to George Foreman. I mean, obviously, I've watched. I mean, just as a fight fan, I've watched just so many documentaries, and just he's such a huge icon and part of history. And his the evolution of his life is just so fascinating. That story arc from from emerging from the Fifth Ward in Houston, Texas. You know, him running from the police, him being buried in mud under a porch as he's running from the police and from dogs. And then telling himself right there, dude, this this is not the life. This is you got to tighten up, George. Is what he's I'm sure told himself getting into the job corps, meeting Doc Brodus. I mean, this those I, I like to call him man those alchemical moments where your life is just really transformed and changed forever um, by you know sometimes by your own volition and oftentimes by people who come into your life. Right, and great great people that we're surrounded by. We just had Neil Anderson. We were talking to him earlier, state senator from Illinois, who's a guy that walked on to the Nebraska football team. Out of 372 students, he was the only one to make the team. 
That's that's pretty strong. Now he's a state senator. He's a Moline fireman. Absolutely. Former paramedic, fireman, absolutely. The guy's a jack of all trades. But yeah, man, um, you know, getting um, standing by here, ladies and gentlemen, standing by. Live radio. You got to love it. So, Patrick, let me ask you, man. Going back in the UFC days, knowing Bruce Buffer, what are some, what are some memories that stand out of from, from you for, for Bruce Buffer? You know, to be honest with you, I mean, he was... He was fairly reclusive. I think he was spending a lot of time in his room rehearsing his lines. I mean, that was something that I learned later on as doing my own commentary, things like that, and having to do live opens for for TV shows, things like that. You've got to memorize a lot of stuff, and that's something that he was working on. But I would say this, that he was constantly, you know, working out, staying in shape, which is obvious. He's, you know, he hasn't gained any weight over all these years. And I'm telling you, the road can be brutal. for a guy like me that's done 180 flights a year, he flies way more than I do. When and, he and he takes care of his instrument, man. You see him walking around pre-show. He's got his, you know, whatever he's drinking. He's got his scarf around his neck to keep the vocal cords warm. I mean, obviously that's his money maker. So he clearly takes that very serious. And his suit game is absolutely tight. Like he he shows up at the fights looking clean as the board of health. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. Yes, and he and does. he's definitely not. He's not even geared up in our gentleman's cooperative gear. Shout out to Mike Bernstein, but. We need to get Bruce turned on to some gentlemen's cooperative. What do you think? Yeah. They make the best suits. They do. They make the best suits I've ever worn. And I've worn David August suits. I've worn a lot of different good suits that were supplied to me by broadcast companies. And gentlemen's cooperative in Chicago is the finest I've put on. Yeah. Bruce definitely definitely shows up clean. Tight as Dick's hat band. And uh, we are standing by here as we get uh, Bruce on the horn. Bruce, where are you? Can we give him a ring, ring back, Jay? My fingers are crossed. We'll get him. We got him. He knows what will happen if he doesn't show up. Hi, it's Bruce. Bruce. Oh, my goodness. Bruce Buffer, we finally reached you, my friend. Boy, I'll tell you, talk about trial and error, Pat. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So, how are you, sir? You've been very busy. You've been filming something today. Yeah, I've been. Are we we doing the interview now, guys? We, We are live on air. Look at you hitting me up as soon as you walk through the door. I love it. <laughs> Bruce, you yeah, know my style. You know my style. I just barge in. Uh, Pat, you're a longtime brother, man. We go back so far. We've been through so much together. It's an honor to be on your show. And um, quite honestly, yeah, I was doing videos and audios. What happened is, Pat, is that I started doing championship introductions for the uh, mixed martial arts UFC fans on video and on audio. Right. And. That took off like crazy because I made it very inexpensive. They can order it at my website, BruceBuffer.com. But then all of a sudden, I'm doing weddings, birthdays, birth of babies. I <laughs> oh, can't my begin goodness. <laughs> Ringtones. Yeah, so I went overboard because I literally had 20 videos to do from like last week to this week, and I just finished. And thanks for giving me a few extra minutes, guys. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. We know you're extremely busy. and you, Look, you've had a storied, historic career i'm trying to remember back and i couldn't even find it which was your first ufc bruce you know it was ufc 8 and as a matter of fact pat on february 16th i'll be celebrating my 23 year anniversary amazing congratulations thank you i appreciate it of announcing in the octagon um not not being married i've never been married but i've almost been divorced twice so no anniversaries there good for you sir (laughs) dodge that bullet (laughs) but at any rate um yeah, I walked in to buy him on Puerto Rico, but, Pat, do you remember a fighter named Scott the Pitbull Ferrazzo? Absolutely. Well, I, I was his manager, 
And I managed him into that event specifically with one thought in mind. I did not want to be a manager of fighters. I managed my brother, Michael Buffer, the great, legendary, let's get ready to rumble announcer. I've managed his career right. for almost 30 years and my own. But I did that as a ploy. Um, Peraza sent me a videotape. I sent it off to the UFC. I've been trying to convince him for about a few months to let me announce the UFC. And it was falling on deaf ears, so I thought, how can I do this? So I managed my fighter into the Bayamon UFC 8 event. You're allowed to go down with your fighter, as you know. I put a tuxedo in the bag, and the then-owner, Robert Meinerwitz, I convinced him the night before. I said, Robert, I got my tuxedo in my bag. Let me announce the prelims. Let me show you what I got. I have media contacts you don't have. You're having a hard time getting publicity for the event. I will help this event grow. I'll help you build the brand. I'll help you build the show, but I need to grow with you as the announcer. So he let me do the prelims, and then they called me back six months later or so to do UFC 10 entirely. And then I would stop in New York asking for the job, taking him out to drinks, again on deaf ears. They hired somebody else. And then they called me to co-star on the show Friends, um, ah. the Ultimate Fighting Champion show with Tank Abbott and Big John McCarthy. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, which was the biggest show on TV. It was their second season. So I, I said to the owner, Robert, I said, Robert, meet me on the set. We have to talk. And I basically, I told him exactly what I'm about to tell you. I said, Robert, I feel like a girl waiting to be asked for the prom. Right? <laughs> put, put me in, coach. <laughs> yeah, put me in. Put me in. And let's just make a deal. I'll help you build this brand. I have so many things I'll do outside of the beyond a call of duty of announcing. And it was the best poker hand I ever played. Yeah, that, what, a, what a smooth job and brilliant, brilliant maneuvering on your part. And so you predate me by one UFC because I was cornering Amri Batesh in Kobo Arena in Detroit at UFC 9 when he fought Don Fry in one of the most brutal fights still to this day that I've ever seen. That, that, yeah, fight, was, that fight was insane. The entire crowd, Kobo Arena was packed in Detroit. They were screaming, chanting USA. Don Fry is dropping knees on top of Omri Batesh, and the only person in the crowd that you can hear, you can hear over the top of, I don't know what Kobo Arena holds, but it's a big arena, and it was completely packed, but it was Omri Batesh's Brazilian girlfriend <laughs> screaming, no, you have no idea. It was a, it was a terrifying moment, actually. Uh, his girlfriend was screaming his name, just shrilling Omri above the crowd, above 14,000 people, whatever it was. And it wow. literally, it literally, and I was yelling at, do you remember Alan Goez? Of course. And Osvaldo Alves, who is the encyclopedia of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I was, I was telling them they had to throw in the towel. I, I, I just, I didn't want to watch it anymore. He was getting knees dropped down on top of him because Don Fry had walked backwards, had him in a front headlock and walked his feet up backwards and was dropping knees down on the back of Omri's head. And it, it was wow. it was a brutal fight. So yeah, we started about the same time, which is which is pretty awesome. And I wanted to point out to the fans also that you do have a martial arts background. You did some tank sudo. You have a black belt in that. You also had a stint as a kickboxer. You you fought some kickboxing matches. So it's not like you don't know what you're doing. No, you know I I, I trained in martial arts. Thank you, Pat. I trained in martial arts since I was 11. My first start was judo. I got a green belt. I moved out from Philadelphia to Malibu when I was 15, and I became friends with some of Chuck Norris's fighting partners like Bobby Burbich and Pat Johnson. And we just trained hard, you know, and the, the sparring and the stuff we did back then is probably a little different than what people will go at it today. But I got a second-degree black belt in Tonks Sudo. I was awarded another black belt in a hybrid style, French Savat hybrid style called Jiu-Jitsu Do. But I do not pretend to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu by any standards whatsoever. They would just bring me in to train their black belts in striking. So after about eight months to a year, um, he presented me with a black belt in front of everybody in his dojo. 
um, which I hold as honor, you know, in my house, but I don't consider myself a black belt for real in, in the art of jujitsu. <clears throat> but I loved uh, kickboxing because I wanted to either be knocked out or knock the other guy out, Pat. I wanted to fight for real. I had a number of street <laughs> fights. And, and that just getting points, you know, hitting somebody once with a kick or a punch did not do it for me in right. dojo uh, fighting with all respect, as great as it is. Yeah, now, in your kickboxing career, how many people, I mean, you knocked some people out, obviously, and you had some concussions, from what I remember. Yeah, I was actually, I was 32. I had connections at the L.A. Forum here in, in L.A., uh, they used to have these Monday night fights, and they would put on these three-rounder kickboxing fights in the midst of all the boxing they were doing. And I used to see it, and I thought, you know, this is fun. I mean, I want to have one pro fight, just to say I did it. I didn't want, wasn't going to become a professional, but I love fighting so much. I go, I just want to have one pro fight. So in training for it, I was concussed twice, and on the second go, I think actually it's probably about six concussions for me, but maybe more, I don't know, over the, over the term of my lifetime. But my doctor just said, he said, Bruce, you got to stop. He goes, don't even go anymore. You're going you're gonna to have problems when you get in your 40s like you're experiencing right now. I've been taking care of you for years. I know what you're doing. I know how hard you go at it. My, my suggestion is or my demand is you stop taking any shots to the head and just train. And, and I just went that route, Pat. I had to listen to him. Right. Now, something we were talking about before we got you on air. You know, I remember you spending time in the gyms, at the hotels when we'd travel. And that's something that, you know, I travel a lot, Bruce, but you travel a lot more than, than I do. And you've, you've kept yourself together very well. So obviously you're taking supplementation, which is smart, and you're, you're hitting your workouts. Do you have anybody go with you on the road ever and train you, or do you do it all on your own? Do you have people write programs for you? How do you do that? Well, I do it all on my own. I've been training so long, you know, my entire life. I've been a constant minimum five, you know, five day a week, um, really athletic minded person training in many different styles and of, uh, whether circuit training, weight training, cardio training, uh, kettlebells, which I love. So I never hired a trainer on the road, but at one point for a couple of years, there was a site I found where I could find a kettlebell instructor in different cities. Okay. So when I was going to a city, I would have the kettlebell instructor meet me in my hotel room or in the hotel gym and get like a good hour and a half kettlebell workout in, which I, to this day, I just had a great workout yesterday with my kettlebells. I think that's one of the greatest ways to train there is. Kettlebell, the, the, yeah, the old ways of training. I mean, kettlebells, mall swinging, Indian clubs, all that stuff that mm -hmm. was lost. It was in the early Turner Halls. Turner Halls, one of the latest existing ones was here in Davenport, Iowa, where, where we're at, which was in downtown Davenport. And that what that was was the Germans' way of training youth, their entire country, for a generation of warriors to defend a nation. So really, I mean, once you become functionally fit, you can be taught to do anything athletically or combatives-wise. Absolutely. But, you know, I used to train to compete. Now I'm training to get older and travel. <laughs> there you go. So so Still when training. after you finally started doing the main events, the, the main televised cards of UFCs, since then, I mean, that's been, what, over 20 years, right? Yes. And how, how many events have you missed and how many events have you done? Well, I've never missed an event. I've done an event with <clears throat> blown out back, uh, severed ACL the night before. I had to do three events in a row. Wow. Laryngitis, 104-degree temperature. I don't tell anybody when I'm sick. Um, so I've never, ever missed an event I was booked for. Okay. But I was doing every single event for about 19 years until they had so many, and I physically couldn't be in two areas at once. Right. And that's when they started to bring up you know, a, a fill-in backup announcer, which... I really, I didn't like it one end because I wanted to do every event, but it came to the point that I just couldn't physically be there. Like one time I did a show in Jersey, New Jersey, in Atlantic City, 
And then right after the, the event, we had to be in Belo Horizonte 18 hours later for the first fight of the, of the day in Brazil. And Dana put me on his private jet and flew me down right after the show. We ran to the airport, flew down, um, got on a new tuxedo, and was back in the octagon in less than 24 hours, which was my rock star moment that I did two UFCs starting in less than 24 hours in two different continents in the world. <laughs> that's that's hardcore, hardcore, buddy. That's impressive. That's, that's hardcore. That's totally hardcore. That's my almost famous stage, you know, like the Rock, the rock movie that came out. Yeah. But I, that kind of pace is hard to continue. It's a little expensive flying me in a private, and I can understand. There's just a lot of events now, and it's smart for a company to have a backup in case something happens. Oh, sure, without a doubt. Now, we, we, we talk about travel. I want to hear some, because obviously I've traveled a lot. I've got some pretty crazy stories. I, I want to hear some of the craziest stuff that's happened to you on the road. Well, well, some of it I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we are let me, on the radio. Let me guess, Russia and Brazil. I was going to say, I want to hear some Brazil uh, stories. I, I, Brazil's got some interesting stories, Pat. Woot, woot. Um, but the, um, uh, I'll tell you one funny story. I actually was doing a Bumbaye event, uh, Enoki's. Yeah. By event, it was right. 2003. And in that event was uh, the great Fedor, Milianco, Milianco rather. Um, let's see who else was there. Uh, Leota Machida. I think Butterbean fought in that event. Um, just a whole stock event. And they did it all very first class. There was 45,000 people in the audience. That night, there was two other shows in Japan happening, including Hoist Gracie fighting the big uh, sumo wrestler that night. I forget his name. Uh. So over 50% of the uh, populace watching TV in, to in, in Japan, rather, was tuned in to three events. That's how big mar mixed martial arts is over there. Yeah. So now we're at, the we're at the after party, and um, it's very first class. Crystal Champagne, King Crab, Main Lobster. It was amazing. One of the amaz most amazing setups I've ever seen for an after party. So Fedora is there with his brother, who's you know a bit of a beast himself, if not more so. <laughs> right. And there were two redheaded... Uh, ring girls who were twins um, and you know me Pat I have a tendency to say hello so I went over to talk to him and as I'm talking to him mm -hmm. Fedor walks over to me or Fedor walks over to me with his brother and the girls walked away and Fedor stood in front of me and it, he said something in, in his na native language which I didn't understand <laughs> and then he said something in English and, and before he did he said something to his brother who grunted <laughs> and they each grabbed they each grabbed an arm and they locked the arm like an arm bar, right? Okay. A standing arm bar. And Fedor looks at me and goes, Bruce, do we have problems? <laughs> right? So you were and messing said, with Fedor and his brother's girlfriend. Oh no. I was I, I went to take a you know, to, to uh, the meat was on the floor, they were about to have their dinner and you know, I made the wrong call in the zoo, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so basically I walked up to say hello to these two lovely girls. And um, I looked at Fedor and I said, Fedor, rather, because it was New Year's Eve, I said, Fedor, no problem. We've been friends for a while. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> American, goes, American dog, don't make me break you. <laughs> exactly. And, and his brother kept looking at me like he couldn't wait for, for Fedor to say, do it, right? So, then, so I looked at Fedor and Fedor looked at me and goes, good. He goes, Bruce, I like you. And, then, and that was it. And they released my arms and they walked away. Wow. That's, yeah. not a, that's not a subtle threat, I don't, but still, yeah. That that would be a bit of a scary yeah, moment, being trapped be, between those two brothers. Yes, yes. Well, the funny thing was that Josh Barnett, Rico Ciparelli, and all these guys that were fighting were in the corner, and they saw it, and I walked back, and they're laughing. And I said, hey, what are you laughing? He goes, do you realize how close you came? 
I go, where were you guys? Go, we're not going over there. <laughs> yeah, that's a bunch of tough people that don't even want to go near those guys. <laughs> exactly. Well, they're all tough. We know that. Right. It was just a friendly, friendly, funny moment. And, and, you know, who knows what they would have done. I mean, Fedor's just trying to make a point. But the point was very well taken. Yeah, that, that wouldn't no, no ambiguity in that right there. I wanted to ask you, and I'm, obviously show prepping has been very fascinating and watching a lot of your, you know, what you where you've come from and how you've uh, grown into where you've grown. And it's so fascinating because, you know, your brother is, is Michael Buffer. And hearing that story, I think it was, um, I think Michael was at an event and somebody came up to him and said, um, I, I'm sorry if I forget your father's first name, um, but Mr. Buffer wants to meet you. And t- talk to us about how you met your brother, yeah. your half-brother, and, and your father. Well, my dad, my, I grew up with my dad, <clears throat> you know, my entire life. Oh, okay, my okay. Brian. So my, dad's always, my dad was an amazing, charismatic combination of Errol Flynn, Steve McQueen, and John Wayne rolled up into one. He actually got <laughs> me in more potential fights and introduced me to more potential dates than any best friend I've ever had in my life, which gives you an idea of what, what character this guy had. He was right. amazing. He walked in a room. People wanted to meet him. He just had that kind of charisma. So <clears throat> when Michael was announcing in the late 80s and Tyson got popular, as Michael got really popular, as boxing became the Monday water cooler conversation after a weekend at work, um, he was taking off. you know. And I would watch boxing, which I was watching, watching almost fresh out of the womb, and I own telemarketing companies, um, a number of companies in the 80s where we didn't have the Internet. So I looked at every phone book in the United States that my salespeople would work out of. And I never saw my last name because I think we all did that back then. We wanted to see if there were any other militiches or buffers in the neighborhood. You know? Right, right. And I never saw it. So when he came on the screen doing the boxing, here's this very handsome, debonair, James Bond-looking individual who's just changing the art of ring announcing. And I was a fan with his Let's Get Ready to Rumble, except when they put his name on the screen, I'm like, wait a minute, Michael Buffer? Wow. Who's Michael Buffer? What is that? What are, why is my last name looking me in the face right now? Wow. Long story cut short, about a year and a half into this, people were asking me, is that your brother, the guy who goes, Let's Get Ready to Rumble? And I go, no, my brother's Brian. And I told my dad what was happening, because I was getting asked a lot. And I was wondering about myself. And I'm driving with my dad. I told him what I just told you. And I said, Dad, do you have any idea who this guy is? And he looked at me while he's driving. He turned to the right and he said, I think that's your brother. I go, what? What are you talking about? And he confessed to me something he never told me because he and my mom had been married for some 35 years at this point. And uh, 30, excuse me, 40 years at this point. And he said, well, I never told you, son, but I was married briefly during World War II. And when I went over in the Pacific to serve my nine months that I was over there, I came back and a child was born. The, uh, the marriage ended in a divorce in less than a year. And um, I have a suspicion that that's who that is. And my child and the child's name was Michael. Right. Wow. So when Michael was doing a fight at the Reseda Country Club here in the Valley in Los Angeles, we were watching it on TV because, you know, we were all in a box. My dad was teaching me how to fight when I was five or six years old before I ever went to school in Philadelphia for the first time, trying to prepare me for when somebody would grab me the wrong way. Yeah, you probably want to know how to fight in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you better know how to fight in Philadelphia. Right. Exactly. So there's a lot of great boxers that come out of Philadelphia. So anyway, um, I called up the – I said, Dad, look, let's call the country club. You call it. Leave a message for, my, for Michael to call you back. So he did. And Michael called him back and they got together for lunch and it turned out to be his son. And here's the, here's the kicker guys. Michael was raised by foster parents under the name of Huber H U B E R. 
during the Vietnam War, he went in the Army when he was like 20 years old, and they looked at his birth certificate, and they said, you're not Michael Huber, you're Michael Buffer. Stamp. Had that not happened, we might not be having this conversation. Today. That's incredible. Wow. That's Isn't crazy. that weird how, how the is, path of life takes you? That's it, absolutely weird. It is nuts. And I, I had a chance to work with your brother. Michael Chavello and I went over to Dubai to call the, the kickboxing matches over there, and your brother was the ring announcer. And that was where that was where Badahari was fighting the the Australian that had beaten him before with the with the spinning the spinning tornado cartwheel kick. Do you right. remember that footage from Badahari getting KO'd yeah. over in Japan? Well, Badahari wanted that guy bad, but anyway, Badahari in the Middle East is an icon. I mean, he is a rock star without a doubt. He he is Elvis Presley of the Middle East. So anyway, that fight ends. Your brother Michael Chavello and myself literally sprint with Badahari in his camp out of the arena into the locker rooms, and the crowd is trying to get into the locker room. There's arms sticking through the crack in the door. They're trying to reach and, and pry the door open. We finally get the door closed. We're in there with Badahari. And so your brother and myself and Michael Chavello and Badahari in his camp, we had to figure out how to sneak out of that arena to get out the back of it and, and hide and, and slip out of there. It was, But we had some great conversations with your brother back there. It was great. He's, he really is a, a very, very genuine human being. Oh, he is. No, Michael's very down to earth. You know, he's been through so much historically in the fighting sports and as well as sports and entertainment over the years. <clears throat> but he's always maintained, as I, I like to take pride in the fact that I maintain, is we're very down to earth. You know? Absolutely. I don't like... I don't like arrogant people. I don't like conceited people. You know, I'm not a fan of that. I, I don't keep them as friends. I deal with them in business because I have to. But you know what? Everybody's equal in this life, Pat. I treat everybody with respect the way I want to be treated. It's just a simple rule I have in life. Yeah, you always have been. And, you know, that's the interesting thing is, you know, the the, the, the biggest names, it seems like, your brother, you, you know, Al Bernstein, all those guys that I've worked with in the past, are genuinely the nicest people I've probably ever been around. They they are the most polite. They're the most understanding. They're the most patient. They they pay attention to the little new guy on the crew who may be just you know an assistant or whatever. And they they, they do they you all and I've never seen you treat somebody badly. I thank you, Pat. I appreciate the kind words. But I you know I never forget where you came from. I have great parents who raised me properly. As I try to instill on the two boys that I help raise, I have a godson and a nephew that. Um, literally, I would come to my home with their mother, who's worked side-by-side side with me, named Kristen, for 20 years in my home office. So during those first two, three years, I'm the dad during the week. I'm changing diapers. I'm feeding six, eight hours a day. And I take great pride in that because I've never been married. I've never had my own kids. But I definitely have had the experience of being a second dad. And I take great pride in that. And it's important that we all instill character and, and class and gentlemanship. Because let's face it, we live in a society of decaying morality. Exactly. You know? Interesting to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I got a, really I got a story for you, Pat. Okay. That, that involves you. Uh oh. Uh oh. Remember, we're on we're, 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 we're on terrestrial radio here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll keep it real. One time we were in an airport, our plane. We missed our. You probably remember this. I wrote about it in my book. It's time in my biography published by Random House about eight years ago. Okay. And. Because I've always, I've always had such great respect and always been a huge fan of you, yours, and I always consider us friends. Absolutely. So we're in the airport, and our flight got delayed. We were either going to Brazil, I figured we were going someplace, and it's like we might miss our flight. It was one of these torturous flight connection routines. And in a very rare moment for me, I was impatient, I was cursing out loud a little bit, 
you know, like what's it, you know, whatever, just for the moment. And you walked up to me and you said, Bruce, there's kids around. You have to stop cursing. If you curse again, I'm going to have to punch you. <laughs> and, and I like, and first off, I agree with you completely because I probably would have been in your position saying that to whoever was doing what I did uncharacteristically at the time. And it's like, first off, I don't want to get hit by Pat Mellon. <laughs> Second off, you're completely correct. So it was like, no problem, no problem. So kudos to you, Pat. Keep me straight. Well, let me tell you what, Bruce. I've 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 had that speech uh, laid on me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and and everybody, Bruce, you've been around. Look, we all cuss. We all do, right? I think I learned that just from teaching children's karate for so many years. It's there's just an off button on me for some <laughs> reason. Anytime I'm around kids, I just you know shut it down. Well, I'm usually the same way. I was just travel weary at that time. But, yeah. Um, listen, one thing about cursing is I think. I, I hate when F-bombs are dropped when they're on TV in the Octagon or yeah. anywhere else. I believe I believe we need to be role models for the kids watching in, in many more ways than just how well they fight in the Octagon. I measure a fighter by the way they carry themselves in and out of the Octagon. And um, if you're going to drop an F-bomb, mean it. If you ever hear me say it, it means either we have a problem or we're going to go for it or <laughs> let's get this settled. But if you say it too many times, it doesn't mean anything. Right. You just sound like a guy that curses. Right, you know? and you know, luckily for the kids out there and most Americans, when Conor McGregor drops an F-bomb, nobody can understand what he's saying anyway. You <laughs> <laughs> said it, I didn't. <laughs> I have to ask you, uh, I mean, we've all seen this sport change, and it's definitely, I mean, it's changing exponentially day to day, and it seems like with the purchase, of the $4 billion purchase from um, WMG, it's it's changing even more. What are your thoughts on, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably misnaming this, but kind of the Conor McGregor effect. Like, the rankings are completely irrelevant anymore, even before the purchase. Like, Shale Sonnen losing to Silva, uh, Anderson Silva, and then getting a light heavyweight fight with John Jones. You know, Dan Henderson fighting, you know, being, I love Dan, but, you know, being ranked 13th to 14th, fighting middleweight title for, with Bisbing. And it just seems like the rankings are just kind of out the door, and it's all about for lack of a better term, these super fights. What are your thoughts on that? Is that part uh, is that part to pay for the $4 billion price tag? Or why is the rankings just almost so irrelevant anymore? You know, I really can't answer that because I have to... Ex I'm, I'm the media mercenary. They point, I shoot. So if I hear right. the rankings of the rankings and I announce them, then that's... I have to go by the fact that those are the actual rankings. But in a, pair, in a sort of another way to answer your question, no matter how you cut it, this is a business, and there are fights that are very entertaining that draw a huge amount of pay-per-views that people want to watch. Right. As an example, if D.C. Cormier fights Brock Lesnar, right? So it's going to bring millions of eyeballs to the, to the uh, TV in more ways than one, all through up to the event. It's tremendous publicity. It's very hard as a fighter and as a promotion to turn down the possibility of these big events. Right. Now, the effect they may have on the ranking system, I really can't give an intelligent answer to that because, again, I'm a loyal soldier. Right. I just have sure. to look at yeah. the rankings and say that's the way it is. Right. But I understand why you're asking your question. Well, yeah, like a Conor McGregor, you know, I mean, you know, God love him. I think he's awesome. But he really held, what was it, the featherweight division after he won it and beat Aldo. I mean, he really kind of held that that uh, division hostages. He bounced around and fought, fought Floyd and fought Nate. And it was just like all those people who were working their butt off in that division were just kind of you know, on standby until he got stripped. And I mean, it's just, he had, he's one of the rare guys though, Bruce, I, I would say that you would agree with this. He's one of the rare people that have come along besides maybe a Ronda Rousey and maybe a few others, but Conor McGregor is the king of all of it in terms of 
he actually was the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. It, it, it's called the, a gentleman is called the it factor. Yes. Okay? Yes. And Rhonda had it, has it. Uh, Connor has it. We live in Connor's world. And a million plus pay per views, almost guaranteed, cuts a lot of family ties. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. it's kind of painful yeah. now because I mean, I, I'm not knocking anybody's fight acumen or whatever, but you know, obviously, success leaves clues, and you got people like Colby Covington are like really forcing themselves to, to 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 be kind of a Conor McGregor or you know really push that kind of WWE promo effect. It's you know, I'd, it's, it's really, either natural or it's not. Exactly. It's rather transparent when you see somebody force it so much. It's um, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Me, you know, people trying to emulate. Well, the success of someone like a Conor McGregor? Here's the thing. When I got into the announcing business, who could I have copied more than anybody who was copied by everybody? My brother, Michael Buffer. I told myself that I will develop my own style within three years, or I'm not going to announce. I'll get out of it. I didn't want to be Frank Sinatra Jr. I didn't want to be riding coattails. I wanted to do everything I've done my entire life, which is pave my own way and do it my way, like Frank Sinatra said, Right. Yeah. People look at Connor's success, they think they got a trash talk. I could be one of the best trash talkers out there, and you won't even hear me curse. And I'll hmm. sell tickets. I know I can. But when you try to rehearse, instead of coming natural, and Connor can come across a little rehearsed at times, too, but he just he just has his way about him. Right. You know, Chael's a really good trash talker, but I think it's kind of obvious. Chael rehearses a lot of his lines, too. He's got a, a probably a whole book to refer from, but he is a sharp quick mind he is he Chael's is very very he's tough. a big pro wrestling fan too he's kind of borrowed a little bit of that from from kind of the pro wrestling and does life. it well he does it he well. does he does yeah they do it well and then you have other guys i'm not going to name names that try to hard. yeah everybody is look become the best fighter you can be because that's what you're in this business to be but you do need to sell tickets handle yourself with class so the sponsors that come on they're not going to look at you like spanky's used to look at tito ortiz you're going to have Coca-Cola or whoever looking at you and saying, hey, I want that guy to represent my product. So handle yourself with class. Right. As far as trash talking is concerned, develop your own style. Let it happen naturally and grow into it. You know, it's... it's, it's, it's it seems everybody's kind of trying to just cash out. I mean, the fighter, the window of fighters are so small. And a perfect example, in my opinion, was like when Tyron Woodley was just, you know, super fight, super fight, I want to fight GSP. It's like... Everybody's kind of pushing for this as opposed to just making it kind of grow organically. I mean, I get it. The, the window is small, and there's a lot of money in the game now. So I'm not, not really necessarily knocking their hustle, but it just doesn't seem very authentic. Well, money, the fact that these, you know, I hear people say, well, they're not paying well in the UFC. Guys, you know, you and I both know they're paying very well yeah. compared to what the guys used to make and what they're making in other leagues with all respect to all the other promotions. Right. I mean, it's producing millionaires after millionaire after millionaire. I was just looking at a list of the published purses that were made by fighters just in 2018. There's some very impressive numbers in, and, and you, you and I both know that those numbers are not actually as much as they really made because they made more in many cases getting pay-per-view points. Right, right exactly. So they're making big money, and big money's being made, and when that short window causes the fighters to call out Conor McGregor because they know that would be a, yeah. a hell of an increase in their meal ticket. You as, know? He, as he said to Rafael Del Sanos, it's the red panty night. Call your wife. Let's celebrate. <laughs> you know, and the, the one thing I will say is in terms of mixed martial arts where they've missed the boat quite a bit, where boxing did it so well, is that building to the crescendo of that huge fight between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson where it just everybody was salivating for a year, year and a half, where they worked through you know two years, two and a half years, three years. Finally, the fight would happen after they'd beaten up everybody else. You know, three, four years, whatever it took, or even longer, 
And that was that massive, you know, huge, huge pay-per-views that, that HBO was doing back in the day. Right. But again, back in the day, it was a different world. It's like when I released my first video game in 1999, Ready to Rumble Boxing. We sold over a million units in like less than two weeks. That was only 350 um, video games made that year. Now there's thousands made every year, not counting the app video games that are out there. Right. Back in the day of Evander and Mike, you know, when they fought, um, we didn't have the plethora of cable stations and everything. We watched boxing in a couple of places, and yeah. that was it. Yeah. yeah. You know? And now as far as your longevity, you've, you've been a mainstay, the voice of the Octagon, and Rogan. You are really the two, and of course Dana White, who stuck around from the very beginning, um, after Semaphore Entertainment was purchased by the Fertitta brothers. But you guys have been there. You and Rogan have been there. You know, and they, and they, you know, I was shocked that they let Goldie go. And I remember back in the day, this is many, many years ago, and I'm sure you'll remember, uh, Joe Rogan and I had to pull Dana White aside when Joe, uh, when, sorry, Dana White was going to release and let go of Goldie because the, he had a conflict with potentially the WWE. And he was like, we're just going to get rid of him. And I went, you can't get rid of him. You know, because he's been announcing for so long, that's the voice we're used to hearing, you know, keep him. And Rogan was arguing, you know, with Dana about it also, and he ended up keeping him. But uh, they eventually let him go. But it's, you guys are the, the the few soldiers left, brother. Well, you know, I take great pride in that. I know Joe yeah. does too. And, and we know that Joe, as well as myself, are very busy in a variety of different areas in sports and entertainment, you know, that we do. And in respect to Gold, you know, thank you for that, because I take great pride in my being the longest, I think, mainstay in the UFC. And it's been a first-class seat on an uphill rocket ship that just keeps going, and I love the ride. And I don't plan on retiring for at least <laughs> the next 10 years. I mean, I'm ready to rock and roll. Well, your health um, is kept Gold. up. You keep training. You keep working out. You're, I mean, you really are. You're staying together, and I, I don't know how you do it, buddy. I don't know how you do it, because as a coach, as an athlete, and as a broadcaster, I've taken a beating on the road. I have to, Pat. You know, it's like I said, I train to be on the road. You know what it is, Pat? I keep everything natural. I eat right. I work out. I stick to the basics. I've got a good Italian uh, heritage, so i got good copper tone oil going through my veins, which, you know, keeps me uh, with the good skin and stuff. So, you know, whatever the reasoning, it's working. And, um, you know, I'll just keep doing what I need to do to do what I love to do and what I'm passionate about. And if you can do things you're passionate about in life and make money out of it, it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. I wake up to a lifestyle, and I love my lifestyle. <laughs> Very correct. Well, it sounds like, and this this goes with everything in life, it sounds like you have the proper mindset. You know what I mean? You you, you remember your roots. You're very humble. You know what I mean? I think that kind of helps lend itself to, to health and longevity, too, when, you're, when your mindset's correct. Absolutely, it does. And I have a very uh, loving and strong support system. I have a, I have a wonderful family. Um, the two boys I told you about, their mother, Kristen, you know, my own. My brother Brian, Michael, my mom, God bless her at 90s. You know, she's wow. rocking and rolling. I call her before and after every show. She's a fan of the UFC. She can actually talk about the UFC and just loves every show, you know. So See, I got awesome, my team man. together. Call your boys. mom. That's awesome, man. That's that's really cool. That's very before cool. Before and after every before and after every show, brother. Good for you, my man. Well, another thing, I mean, talking about, like, you know, you're, you're, no plans to retire you know, I think I'm not. I'm a huge professional wrestling fan. So back in the day when Vince bought WCW, there was only kind of one show in town, the WWE. And so, what are your thoughts on now? Obviously, you know, UFC is the top dog. But what do you think of these the emergence of your Bellators, your one fighting championship? 
um, to the point we just had Ben Askren on um, a couple weeks ago after he announced his fight with Robbie. And these, these kind of switches, you know, you got Gerard Musasi who jumped to Bellator when he was ranked number, I think, three or four in the middleweight division of the UFC. What are your thoughts about the competition the UFC has going on right now, if you can call it competition? And kind of people jumping ship. Eddie Alvarez going to 1FC, Misha Tate, Ben jumping to uh, UFC, Demetrius Johnson going to Bellator. What are your thoughts on that? Well, First and foremost, before I'm an announcer, which I'm known for mostly by the people listening to your show, I'm a businessman and a marketer. I've owned a number of companies. I'm at First Corporation when I was 19. I do motivational speeches, teaching branding and marketing to companies and entrepreneurs to help them better themselves. I love seeing people be successful and make money. Uh, if I make everybody money around me and happy, then I know the return will come to me because I live life karmically. But in business, there's one rule that stands true, and it's an example of what you're saying. Success breeds competition. And competition breeds success. Yes, yes. The UFC is like the NFL. It is the rocket ship to which everybody else is following in the tailgate of their flames. They are breaking down the barriers of negativity. They are spending the gazillions of dollars they've had to spend to get us to where we're at. And everybody else is benefiting. You have fighters falling out of the octagon, falling into Bellator. They're they're benefiting. Um, It gives a proving ground for other fighters to prove themselves to get their championship credibility or movement in those other events, and then gives them bartering power to come over and become a UFC fighter. Because I think the ultimate goal, if I'm not mistaken, and you can answer this for me, of every mixed martial artist, as Pat, you can probably attest to, being that you're one, is to put on a championship belt that says UFC. Correct. And to fight in the octagon. And I really believe that to be true, even though these other companies are doing a great job, you know, credit to 1FC, credit to Bellator, um, you know, they're all out there doing their thing. And, and I'm saying, great, go for it. You know, there's McDonald's and there's Burger. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it's really cool. It. It's cool to see that. Like I said, competition. I think it's absolutely essential because when you got only just kind of one show in town, I mean, not that it gets bland or anything, but it's good to kind of see rivalries and stuff and for people to have options. You know, if you're disgruntled with the UFC, you know, you have an option. So I think, I think that's well, personally good to see. There's another good thing, too. you got Ben coming over who – you know, I, I truly respect can't wait to announce his first fight. I know how, how good he is, great he is, rather. And it's almost like NFL trading teams and guys making more money making their trades. That, that, I, want the, I want every single fighter to make retirement money, to make seven-figure money to build for them. They're putting their blood, sweat, tears, yep. and life on the line. They deserve to make a million dollars or more every fight. I've worked my entire career, Pat, you know this, doing everything I can to get the fighters to get as much as they can. And that's what I'm there for. I'm there to serve the fans and the fighters. The show is not about me. It's about the fighters, and it's for the fans. Yeah, right? you're out there. I mean, I, the way I've always seen you is you're out there controlling the three-ring circus with the animals running around you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you know what? We've had a few rodeos in the octagon for sure, <laughs> Well, it's definitely not about you, as you say, but you definitely put on a darn good show, man. When you start, you know, getting your jump on. And the 180 and the 360, the baby. Yeah, I mean, there you go, baby. I, I, you know, that definitely adds to the palpable energy that, you know, right before a fight. So, I mean, you definitely uh, put on a heck of a show, my friend. Rogan went nuts when he hit the 360. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I, I held it to the end because I wanted him to just wonder if I was going to do it. I knew exactly when I was going to do it. Yeah. I was trying to blow everybody away. How often did you but practice you that before you pulled it off? Like I do my announcing, I never practice. I, I don't rehearse ever. Are you I serious? <laughs> yeah, but I did. But here's the one thing, though. That night in my hotel room or that day before I went down, I did something I don't normally do. I, I know, From my martial arts background, I can easily pull off a jumping, spinning kick, okay? That's just, I've been doing it for so many years. I know I can pull a 360, right? Right. 
But in tuxedo and tuck shoes and in front of 16,000 people and millions watching on TV, it's a little different than pulling it off in the dojo. Sure enough. So I was in my room, and I did it three times when I got dressed, and I slipped twice on the carpet. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, man, you know, what's going to happen here, right? But then when I turned around from Frank Mir and I walked over towards Brock, inside I had the you know the uh, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, <laughs> and the devil was saying to me, "If you don't pull this off, you're going to be the bitch of the internet on the forums on Monday." <laughs> right. And it, not that that bothers me because I'm I'm a stick and stone, don't break my bones kind of guy. I don't, right. You know, you got to have a strong skin in this business. Yeah. But it was just more motivation for me to pull it off, and quite honestly, the way it came off. I'm very proud of that, but I only did it once. I could do it more, but Joe and I talked about it after the show, and and, and we agreed that never do it again. Just let it stand there. That way people talk about it. Nice. Just leave it alone. Absolutely. No, I'm surprised that as good as you do, as good as you are in the octagon, that you don't rehearse your lines. Because I, I have to be honest with you. I mean, working with Mauro Ronaldo, who's one of the greatest – one of the greatest commentators I've ever worked with, and Michael Chavello is is equal. They're both super intelligent, very high IQ, very high energy individuals. Both those guys, I mean, they rehearse a lot and they memorize their lines for for opens of shows. And so I I just assumed that you did the same. It's it's amazing you don't. No, no, it's kind of like studying in school. And thank you for that. And by the way, yeah, Moral and Mike are great. There's no question. Um, very happy to see John McCarthy in the commentating booth now too. Cause yeah, he deserves to put up his gloves and and do what he loves, and he's and he's excellent at it. He is. He's my brother. I miss him so much in the octagon, but we still talk. We're we we're friends forever. But you know what? It's like you got to remember, I'm going out over an eight-hour period, give or take, and I'm roaring for roughly 25 minutes, right? Morrow, Mike, John, yourself, when you commentate, you're there for seven, six, eight hours. So. Maybe your canned openings, a little rehearsal, I can understand that and accept that. But me, my job is I'm a one-take guy. i got to get out there and do it. If I make a mistake, i got to roll over it so nobody knows or they do know. But it's just the way I work. Even my cards, you don't see me look at my cards. I'm not reading from my cards. But if I have to glance, if I forget a height or a weight, I've gotten this knack. No matter if the card's in front of me pointing or upside down, I can read it even with a little side glimpse of my eyeball. I, I've always wondered that, like you're a million ankles or you're Khabib not going to meta. I'm just like, it's like I wouldn't know if you broke those down phonetically or you're just used to knowing how to say their names. Oh, no, I write them down phonetically. I just sold my uh, an auction to benefit Make-A-Wish Foundation with some proceeds from it on my UFC 232 cars. And if you look at them, they're, the names are written phonetically when they have to be. And if you ask me what the hardest name to say is, it's not Habib Nurmagomedov. <laughs> Right? It's not Joanna and J. Chuck. It's Mike Swick, Frank Trigg. It's like single syllable names. I got to draw these out and right, give, them right. down, give them some romance to them, you know? <laughs> Those awesome. are the hard ones, to be honest with you. Oh, my goodness. Well, we only have a, a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you so, I mean, the fans, the UFC fans are so very fickle. Um, I heard something Shell Sonnen say the other day about Connor. It's like no matter what Connor does, I heard he called out the guy that Floyd fought the Japanese kickboxer. But no matter what Connor does, you're going to watch. Everyone supposedly boycotted Jones after his turnable, whatever it is. But I, I heard the numbers was what one million pay per view eyes on that fight with uh, with Alexander. What are your I mean, what are your thoughts on John Jones' return actually, and um, his getting the belt back and his his legacy and all of that? John Jones is one of the most talented, gifted mixed martial artists in the history of the sport. Without a doubt. He's amazing. 
I had a conversation with John. I wrote about it in my book. I had a chapter on John. I wrote in the book before he ever became champion. I was having dinner with him. And I'd known him for about a year now, right? Because I found him friendly, uh, his manager, the whole bit. We would get together. But I said to him, I said, John, I won't say why, guys. But I said, John, I am noticing kinks in your mental armor. I said, you have a chance to be the greatest of all time once you become champion and carry that forward. The only one that's going to screw this up or F it up for you is John Jones. Watch yeah. yourself. Watch yourself. Now, I am not a fortune teller. I'm just an observant man of experience. The only difference between John and me at 25 is that I have 45 years or 35 years more experience in life than him. But it's true. You know, we've got to watch ourselves, guys. You've got to check yourself, to, you know, so you don't wreck yourself. Well, Bruce, I have to and, tell you, just from hearing people I've talked to, or you are not the first person to say that, even before he was famous, like way before that they were giving him that very advice. It's interesting. Well, what I, what I wish for John, um, for him, for his family, for everything, I wish John great success. I hope and pray that he's learned from his mistakes and becomes a better John Jones, both as a human being and as a fighter. And so far, so good. Let's just hope that, you know, he stays on the straight and narrow, provides us with tremendous amounts of entertainment for all of his fans, makes millions and millions of dollars. God knows in these these lapses of two, three years, he's probably lost $20, 30000000 million. I can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. But it it yeah. kind of struck me as odd that as he's promoting himself and kind of, hey, I'm in, you know, I've turned over a new leaf, he pretty much was adamant about the fact he started smoking weed and drinking again. Like, obviously, he wants to do that privately. I just, you know, whatever. But as well, he was public about that. Yeah. It was like right before, not too long before his Alexander fight. And it was like pretty from an optic standpoint. It's like, man, if you're really trying to new John, trying to rebrand yourself, I kind of want to keep that. You know, I don't know if Nike wants to hear about that, <laughs> especially after he lost. Well, his. yeah, but, you know, let's regarding the drinking, you know, listen, alcohol is not good for you on any basis, but there's nothing wrong with, you know, a couple glasses of wine sure. or whatever. I just don't abuse it. As far as marijuana is being legalized everywhere, I truly believe in the in the benefits of the CBD derivative from marijuana. I believe where it's legal, if you choose to do it as an adult, it's much better to, to do that than drink alcohol, which is much worse for you. My brother was a cop for 25 years. He said, I never broke up a fight because two guys just got done smoking a joint in right. the bar. Right. You know? uh, and CBD is, it's proven that, you know, the inflammation that it removes from the human body. I mean, a lot of a lot of professional athletes, a lot of people are benefiting from it for anxiety, a lot of other things. And, and it's the CBD side of things, it doesn't get you high. There is none of that no. that's involved no. with it. So it is very, very, very medicinal and all natural. Exactly. Whether it's anxiety, depression, all these things they're finding out. And if something's legal and, and as a fighter, you're training all day, beating up your body and you're sore, I'd much rather see you do CBDs instead of taking an opiate, yes. which only leads to much worse For problems, sure. not addiction. The NFL should allow CBDs to avoid opiate use. I talk about this on my podcast this time, you know, from time to time. And if you want to go home and it's legal and you want to light up and your privacy in your own home and it makes you relax, well, that's your prerogative as an adult. I'd rather see you do that for than sure. Three fingers of scotch. And I was—I mean, I was more saying it from the standpoint of his, you know his track record with it and all of it hasn't really been a, a tale of moderation. But you know, I, again, I wish him well too. I just kind of found it odd as he's rebranding himself. That's what he said. You know, I have one more question before we let you slide. You mentioned Brock and guys. I'm, I'm okay if you want a few more minutes. I'm okay. Whatever. We, we kind of got a heart out here at, at eight o'clock, but. Or maybe maybe a minute or two. But you had mentioned Brock in D.C. Do you think that fight is going to happen? And do you think D.C. and Jones will go at it one more again? You know, I just got asked about this on another interview when I was down in the Bahamas playing a big poker tournament last weekend. And 
and they put on the title, Buffer says D.C. should retire. That's not what I said. <laughs> what I said is, is that D.C., who's a great guy, has a family, responsible human being. He's made tremendous amounts of money, especially in his last three fights. He's got a shot, which I do not know if it's going to happen. I hope it happens. We'll see if it happens, fighting Brock Lesnar in a couple months. If it comes together, he'll make a huge amount of money, well-deserved out of that fight. How do you think that'll turn and out? Do you, do you take picks? No, I say may the best man win, but I got you. Know, you. I, would I, got have, you. I would have to lean towards DC because of his abilities. This guy finds ways to win no matter who he's facing. Right. He's incredible. And um, But again, may the best man win. I'm an equal opportunity announcer. But... You know, when you look at it, there's nothing wrong with retiring on top. Without and, a doubt. And I don't want to hear about this, oh, well, you know, Jones beat you twice. Well, Jones was out of the scene for a while while D.C. kept fighting. Right. D.C. has fulfilled his legacy. But if he retires, I'm fine with that. I think it would be great for him. But if they come to him and say, hey, we want you to fight Jones, and here's a huge hmm. Brinks truck of money we're going to back <laughs> up to your house. And he pops out of retirement, goes down to 205, and does it. You know, who Gotta knows? do it. And, and I hope those it. losses don't bother me either because Muhammad Ali was not the greatest all time because he won every fight. And I, me personally, I think DC is an actual heck of a better ambassador for the sport and for champions than, than yes. John Jones. And I love John Jones, so I think he is the greatest of all time. But I think, like you said, some of his uh, stuff might get in his way. Um, wow. Champ, do you got anything to close out with, Mr. Buffer? This has been the voice of the Octagon, Bruce Buffer. I can't thank you enough for your time, sir. I don't know you personally, but I've been a big fan of your work for a very long time. Your suit game is absolutely on point. <laughs> you walk out there clean as the Board of Health, and nothing but kudos to uh, just some of the flyest suits I've seen. Yeah, thank you very much, Bruce. And We, we want to make sure that you get in any plugs that you'd like to get in, things that you've got going on, uh, your website, anywhere that people can follow you on social media. I appreciate that. Thank you for your time, guys. Um, basically, uh, what I'd like to plug is if you watch Holmes and Watson, it didn't get great reviews, but they, they wrote a scene specifically for my brother Michael and I in a cameo, and it's hilarious. We're in the movie, so that's a lot of fun. I have got a bunch of announcements that are going to come out, but I come from the school of, and there's some pretty big things. I come from the school of that is not happening now. Don't talk about it because I don't want to jinx the gestation period. Right. Um, got a lot of shows coming up. Um, and one big thing is, if you go to BruceBuffer.com, my site, I get tears in my eyes at the thank you notes I get from the wedding introductions, the baby births, the championship introductions. I make these out very affordable. I use the military, animal, and children's charities. But Kristen runs that business for me. Just go to BruceBuffer.com, and I will give you a keepsake on video or audio that will be a keepsake for life. If you're a true UFC fan, I'll introduce you like the world champion that we know Pat Militich is. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> That's very kind of you, sir. And Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Bruce Buffer. Bruce, thank you again so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Um, I miss you, buddy. I haven't seen you in a while. I'll see you uh, at the Lawler. I'll see you at the Lawler Funky Fight. How's that? I love it. Sounds All right. good. All right, brother. Happy New Year, boys. You too. Thank, thank you, you Bruce. Thank you very much. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for everything. Cheers, man. Peace and love, brother. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is Everything Combat for our second episode. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Yeah, yes.